Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon to promote and to protect public education. And we also wish to uh, protect the idea of separation of religion from the state. And we have a very interesting uh, lineup for you today on this very important election day in Australian history. We're going to give you a few reasons why. Uh, if you haven't voted yet, you should put the coalition at the very bottom of your preferences. But um, we have a, a very interesting press release too, because during the week, an ex-archbishop or bishop of Canberra, a gentleman called Mr Browning, George Browning, uh, wrote a very interesting article in John Menadou's blog entitled Christians and the Federal Election." Now, the dogs have often been uh, accused of being anti-religion, but actually we're not. We just think that uh, if you have a very strong belief system, you should be prepared to pay, put your money where your mouth is and your belief system is. We believe that taxpayers should not be asked to uh, provide money for the propagation of your particular belief, whatever that may be. So our press release, 3937, uh, Kim is going to start to read it, and then we're going to have Jeff, who is going to tell you what Christians uh, believe and uh, what they should perhaps vote in federal election. So over to you, Kim and Jeff. The dogs are often portrayed as anti-religion. This is not true. Many dogs members have a religious belief, but dogs are opponents of entanglement of religion with the state through the use of taxpayer money for religious enterprises and in particular, the public funding of sectarian schools. That does not mean that people with firm religious beliefs should not have strong political convictions. It just means that they should be prepared to pay for them. So dogs were interested to find that on May 17th, 2022, with four days to go to the federal election, George Browning, the president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network and retired Anglican Bishop of Canberra Goldburn, had the following article on John Menadou's blog. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Kim. Um, this is uh, called Christians and the Federal Election by George Browning. Christianity and Christians cannot be neutral or disconnected from politics. Christianity is an incarnate faith. While it rightly gives central place to personal piety, Christian is, Christianity is, at its roots, a way of life deep, deeply immersed in the world for its justice, renewal and transformation. It is so because God, who took human likeness in Jesus, is prejudiced towards harmony and justice and therefore is on the side of the poor and needy, the downtrodden and voiceless. The divine agenda is nothing less than the transformation of human society into one where the first will be last and the last will be first. Christians pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For this reason, at the forthcoming federal election, Christians have a solemn obligation not to vote for blatant self-interest, but to vote for a personal party they will believe will be most inclined to serve justice and common good, a sustainable future, not just in Australia, but throughout the globe. Those currently in power wish to remain in power, an understandable but not necessarily a virtuous aspiration. They are encouraging us to believe in the direction we have been heading is the direction that should be maintained. Let, us, let me come straight to the point. I do not believe a Christian in good conscience 
can support a political party wedded to neoliberal capitalism and self-interest? My reason is simple. It is that neoliberal capitalism is a construct embedded in a flawed philosophical and quasi-theological position, which inevitably leads to injustice and is incapable of addressing the 21st century crises faced by humanity. Neoliberal capitalism is born from a post-enlightenment position that contends the individual and not the community is the fundamental unit of society. And on a broader scale, that nations and national interest, nationalism, should shape international life. It is flawed because humans are social beings. None of us can live alone. None of us are capable of true independence. We are all interdependent. We are who we are through others. Reflecting on the catastrophic slaughter of World War I, an international gathering of Christian leadership in 1920 contended that self-interest is the basis of human violence and disintegration of the greatest of all evils, uh, which is national self-interest. Neoliberal capitalism is founded on a quasi-theological position because of its, the obvious mutual interdependence, one could say marriage, that exists between political and religious right. But the religious right is misleading its political friends and giving them false comfort. Priority given to individual identity is an entirely novel idea imposed by the religious right on scripture, and it is a novel thought to Christianity. Scripture contends we are as strong as our weakest members and that while each is unique, our uniqueness lies in the contribution with which we can gift the identity of the whole body. Church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members, is attributed to both William Temple and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If there is to be a marriage between Christianity and politics, it must be founded on the idea that our interest is developed through the investment in the legitimate interest of others and that national interest must, must serve global best interest. Neoliberal capitalism was given a huge kick along by Thatcher, Reagan and Howard and exaggerated to absurdity by Abbott and Trump. The philosophy has meant individual rights have triumphed over societal good. Individual rights and needs are transient. Social good endures across generations. Neoliberal capitalism wins at the ballot box through temporary hip pocket incentives at the expense of long-term policy and reform. This flawed philosophy has resulted in the privatization of much that should have remained in public hands, not least the port of Darwin. We have seen the consequences play out in amongst other areas, aged care, the prison system, and the inability of the electricity grid to be made fit for purpose as we journey towards decentralized generation of renewable energy. We have seen this flawed philosophy play out the decimation of the public service. The corporate memory and skill of the public service exists to serve the common good. It is almost beyond belief that neoliberal politicians, and especially the Prime Minister, deride non-elected elected experts and insist that they, partisan politicians, are the ones to decide strategies, the merits of which can only be properly understood through expert technical, scientific or modelling analysis. This flawed philosophy has insisted the market makes the necessary adjustments and reforms that society needs. If this is the case, why have government at all? But at least it goes partway to explain why the current government appears to have no reforming policy on any of the crucial issues that confront us. For the three years of its latest term, the government has presided over a policy void. The market does well what it is designed to do, make maximum profit at minimum cost. But the market cannot address the appalling pay level endured by aged care workers or the inaccessibility of housing. Nor can the market determine the support that should have been given to Pacific Island nations. These and many other issues need value attributed to them independently of the market, values that undergird society society's good. Ironically, the market can now make a major contribution to climate transition, given it is cheaper to use renewables than it is to generate energy from fossil fuels. The government, feeling stymied that, it is, that its commitment to fossil fuels no longer has the support of business or the market, now abuses the very market principles it espouses by subsidising fossil fuels to the mining industry. Finally, the extreme end of this flawed philosophy and quasi-theology makes place for and gives comfort to conspiracy theories. People such as Craig Kelly and George Christensen have been tolerated, even protected within the government. Can the coalition parties be political platforms through which Christians can invest their energy and commitment? Yes, of course, yes. But this can only be so with integrity. 
if those parties free themselves from the flawed ideology in which they are trapped by the extreme elements in their ranks. Wanting social equity, an environmentally sustainable world for future generations, transparency and accountability in government, compassion and empathy for refugees and asylum seekers, a voice to parliament should be a cross-party aspirations. That they are not is shameful and the reason for the rise of independent voices. At a federal election, we, people of faith, must be bold enough to stand up for the divine agenda made manifest in Jesus. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so the dog's comment on all of this, many Christians who are not of Mr. Morrison's peculiar sect might utter a sigh of relief after reading Bishop Browning's paper. And dogs are also relieved as far as it goes. But like the Lib Labs, there's not a whisper about the current unequal funding arrangements between public and private schools. Dogs will take Bishop Browning and his Anglican Christians more seriously when they trumpet from the roofs rooftops, the extraordinary largesse from the currently blab governments around Australia showered upon their Anglican schools. For example, according to Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools, Geelong Grammar Victoria has been overfunded by $4.7 million, Haleybury Victoria by $22 million, Ivanhoe Grammar Victoria by $10.4 million, Melbourne Grammar Victoria by $7.3 million, St Peter's Adelaide by $11.9 million, Hale, Western Australia by 10.8 million, and Trinity Grammar, New South Wales by 16.4 million, to name a very few. None of these schools cater for any more than 1% of the lowest income quartile of the population, and some none at all. All have more than 90% and some 98% of students from the top two income quartiles of the population. Dog suggests it would be appropriate for Bishop Browning, given his Christ-centred Christianity and devotion to the common good, to address the greed, lack of compassion, and the blatant exclusiveness and elitism of Anglican schools throughout Australia. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Kim and uh, Jeff. That was a very interesting article by uh, George Browning, wasn't it? Um, we agree with him about neoliberalism, of course, and privatisation, but um, uh, not a whisper. Education has been the non-issue uh, as far as the Lib Labs are concerned, but not as far as the Greens and a few others. But, um, well, we'll see what happens on Saturday, I suppose. But we'll have a bit of a break and um, we'll, we'll come back to read what Trevor Cobalt has got to say about Stuart Roberts' duplicities on school funding. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and uh, here is Sol and Dale to inform you about Trevor Cobalt's latest research. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. Uh, so Trevor Cobalt writes about Stuart Roberts' duplicities on school funding and outcomes. And he writes, education is the forgotten issue of the federal election campaign. Yet it hasn't stopped the promulgation of highly misleading statements about school performance and funding by the acting education minister, Stuart Robert. He claimed on the 7.30 report last week that the government has increased funding for public schools by 113% and that 86% for private schools, yet Australia's international results have decreased. Both claims are highly misleading. The minister did not provide the basis for his statement about the school funding increase. It is not clear whether he referred to the aggregate increases or per student increases and whether it is in current dollars or, adjust, or adjusted for inflation. However, new figures just released by the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority 
clarify the comparative increases in government funding for public and private schools. The new figures show that the federal government funding for Catholic and independent has increased by far more than for public schools since 2013. Funding per student for Catholic schools adjusted for inflation increased by $1,760 per student and by $2,226 for independent schools compared to only $702 per public school student. That is, the federal government increased funding for Catholic schools by $1,058 per student more than for public schools and increased funding for independent schools by $1,522 per student more than for public schools. Nevertheless, the overall state of school funding must include state and territory government funding because states have primary responsibility for funding public schools. Total government funding adjusted for inflation increased by $1,830 per student in Catholic schools and by $2,304 per student in independent schools, compared to just $1,076 in public schools. In percentage terms, government funding for independent schools increased by 34% and by 22% for Catholic schools, compared to only 10% for public schools. This is a far cry from 113 or 86%. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Sorrel. Yes, the much larger increase in government funding for private schools has ensured that their total income now far exceeds that of public schools. In 2020, the total in income of independent schools was $24,338 per student compared to $16,030 in public schools. The income of Catholic schools was at $17,821 per student, and it's also much higher, which is also much higher than for public schools. The falsehood by the Minister for Education obscures the fact that under the coalition government funding increases, funding increases have heavily favoured the school sectors least in need. The large majority of disadvantaged attend public schools. 82% of low SES students, 83% of Indigenous students and 82% of remote area students. In addition, the National Project Man Manager for PISA in Australia and Deputy Director of Research at the Australian Council for Educational Research, or ASA, Sue Thompson, recently revealed that 41% of public schools are classified as disadvantaged schools, compared with 3% of Catholic schools and less than 1% of independent schools. These proportions mean that there are 2,744 disadvantaged public schools, but only 53 disadvantaged Catholic schools and 11 disadvantaged independent schools at most. In other words, 98% of all disadvantaged schools in Australia are public. It is scandalous that the coalition governments have directed huge funding increases to the school sectors that account for only 2% of all disadvantaged schools and enrol less than 20% of all disadvantaged students. They have favoured the privileged over the underprivileged. As Tony Abbott notoriously said in relation to Liberal Party support for private schools, it's in our DNA. The Acting Minister also said that student achievement is declining despite increased government funding. Unfortunately, this is a widespread belief that relies wholly on the OECD's PISA results for 15-year-old students. It ignores other evidence of increasing student achievement and also ignores the unreliability of PISA as a measure for national education performance and international rankings. The PISA picture of declining education performance is contradicted by improving Year 12 results. Year 12 completion rates have increased significantly over the past 20 years, as shown in the Productivity Commission's annual report on government services. Average completion rates increased from 68% in 2001 to 76% in 2020. And completion rates for low socioeconomic status students 
increased from 64% to 72%. The ABS Education and Work Survey shows that the proportion of 20 to 24-year-olds who attained a Year 12 or equivalent qualification increased from 73% in 2004 to 85% in 2020. The proportion who attained a Year 12 or Certificate 2 qualification increased from 81% to 90%. OECD, OECD data also shows that Australia had one of the larger increases in the, OE, in the OECD in the proportion of 25 to 34-year-olds who attained at least an upper secondary education. It increased by 20 percentage points from 71% in 2001 to 91% in 2021. These are all indicators of an improving education system, not a deteriorating one. It seems that bad news is more reportable than good news. A major problem in relying on PISA as a measure of Australia's education performance is that nearly three quarters of Australian students did not fully try in the tests in 2018. The ASA reported that the majority of Australian students, that 73%, indicated that they would have invested more effort if the PISA test counted towards their marks. It is difficult to accept the PISA results as an accurate measure of Australia's educational performance when three quarters of the students didn't fully try. While there's no time series data on student efforts in PISA, the PISA survey also reveals increasing student dissatisfaction at school, which may show up in reduced effort and lower results. For example, the proportion of Australian students who feel unconnected with school increased fourfold from 8 to 32% between PISA 2003 and PISA 2018. This was the third largest increase in the OECD and is likely to have contributed to declining effort and results. It also found high variation between countries in the proportion of students not fully trying. So it also calls into question the validity of league tables of countries based on PISA results, which attracts so much publicity and commentary. Rankings can move up and down depending on student effort. The OECD has acknowledged that differences in student effort across countries will affect countries' results and rankings. These results suggest that PISA is not the accurate, reliable and valid measure of educational quality assumed by the acting minister and many commentators. As the renowned international education scholar Yong Zhao has observed, the PISA tests have become the false idols of educational excellence for the world to worship. The irony is that the PISA results that the Acting Minister for Education relies on actually show that the results of Catholic and independent schools have fallen more than for public schools. The National Project Manager for PISA in Australia and Deputy Director of Research at ASA, Sue Thompson, has reported that reading achievement in Catholic and independent schools declined by the equivalent of half a year of schooling between 2009 and 2018, while achievement in public schools did not change significantly. The decline in science in Catholic and independent schools was even bigger and much more than in public schools. The decline in mathematics was similar in all sectors. On the acting minister's own logic then, these results show that the huge increase in government funding for private schools has proved to be a complete waste of money. He would have, have to concede that public schools make more efficient use of government funding than private schools. Nevertheless, there is one common feature of PISA, NAPLAN and Year 12 results. It is a large achievement gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students. Overcoming these gaps is the fundamental challenge facing education policy and funding. It is a challenge ignored by the Morrison government and its predecessors. Funding increases were misdirected to those least in need and the at the expense of those most in need. A new government must reverse this and ensure that schools most in need are fully funded to meet the learning needs of their students. Back to you, Jean.
Well, congratulations to Trevor. He really does give us all the facts and the figures. But what stuck in my mind from that was the fact that although they're underfunded, public schools are in fact more efficient at producing results, international results, than uh, private schools. And what, what makes you so surprised about that? They always have been. And uh, they can do it even though they aren't given all the heaps and heaps of Commonwealth money. But we'll have a bit of a break and we come back to Bridget, who's going to talk about teaching. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Well, listeners, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and we're now going to talk about uh, what a lot of the people uh, involved in education in Australia have been saying for some time, but um, the politicians don't seem to be able to come to terms with it. There is a lack of teachers. Young people are not going into teaching. In the 19th century, uh, working-class children were given a chance of an education with what they called the pupil teacher system. They had head teachers whom they paid relatively well and they had pupil teachers who were not paid very well but who got their education and eventually became head teachers. Uh, so we've now got an idea that uh, we're going to have this thing called HALT, which is to promote teachers to the status of highly accomplished or lead teachers. That's H-A-L-T-S. And um, personally, I think this is just a variation on the old pupil teacher system, but um, I'm happy to stand corrected on this and let's hope that they do produce more teachers for our schools and they pay them all a lot more than they do at the moment. But over to Bridget, who's going to tell us about these halts. Thank you, Jean. And this is an article from the Sydney Morning Herald from May 15th by Jordan Baker. The New South Wales government will try to revive a struggling program to identify the state's best classroom teachers and has set an ambitious target of increasing the number of them tenfold within the next three years. The system promoting the teachers to the status of highly accomplished or lead teachers, also known as HALTs, so they work as mentors to other teachers, has existed for 10 years, but despite initial plans to have more than 1,000 of them in 2022, there are just 274 across three sectors in New South Wales and just over 1,000 nationally. Many teachers find the application process too complicated and expensive. To earn higher salaries, most leave the classroom and become principals or work in head office. High-performing systems in countries like Singapore have many master teachers or teachers of teachers to improve learning across schools. Education Minister Sarah Mitchell wants 2,500 HALT teachers by 2025. She said the application process would be streamlined to reduce red tape and teachers would be given clearer guidelines on how to provide evidence of their quality teaching as well as feedback on their application. The quality of teachers across New South Wales is world-class, but we haven't seen that reflected in the number of teachers putting their hand up for higher levels of accreditation, which also attract a higher pay rate, she said. This is something I want to see more of, teachers being recognised and remunerated for their impact, and I hope to see the number of HALT teachers grow to at least 2,500 by 2025. 
Australian schools are facing growing teacher shortages in many geographical areas and disciplines, and surveys have shown some potential recruits are put off by the lack of opportunities for career progression if they stay in the classroom, as well as by relatively low pay compared with other professionals. In New South Wales, assistant principals and head teachers earn $126,528, Holtz earn $117,060, and classroom teachers at the top of the salary scale and $109,978. Many teachers have been put off applying for HALT status because they feel the extra pay does not offset the complexity of the application process. When New South Wales adopted the HALT certification, it was introduced nationally in 2012. It aimed to have 1,110 top teachers by 2022, but a report from the New South Wales Audit Office said that in 2019, the target was halved to 530. The Audit Office report also found that the skills of HALT teachers were not being fully used. Only 27, 27 of those accredited in New South Wales were working in the classroom. Most were in leadership positions but felt their skills could be better employed. A 2020 report by the Grattan Institute think tank found attempts to create a class of accomplished teachers across the country were dis disorganised and involved too much paperwork, which often just added to an already heavy workload. Kuldev Kara from Quakers High School Quakers Hill High School became a highly accomplished teacher last year and works in the New South Wales Department of Education's mathematics growth team. She said a highly accomplished teacher works within a subject or stage of primary school, while a lead teacher works across faculties or age groups. The reason for more halts is they are really good role models for good teachers, she said. They demonstrate highly effective practice, they're innovative in what they do, they have an impact on students, teachers, others in the community. If there's an early career teacher, those these are good role models that schools need to have. We have a lot of good role models here already who are not accredited. This new process will hopefully help them become highly accomplished or lead teachers. Over to you, Jean. Well, that's all that's all very interesting, but it's all been done before in the 19th century with the pupil teacher system. And uh, in earlier stages of the 20th century or even the late 20th century, in the old demonstration schools where the uh, student teachers used to go to see how to teach. But, um, well, let's hope that it produces some results and let's hope, greatly hope, that our teachers are paid a proper salary, commensurate with their importance in our community. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with some more politicking. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. For an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription, you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and uh, we've got a very underwhelming election, unfortunately, for public education. Uh, election 2022, there's been no education minister for Mr. Mr. Morrison. They're missing in action. We're not even sure who the education minister really is, whether it's Roberts or Tudge but we can do without both quite happily. So they've got no education minister and the opposition, Mr Albanese, seems to have no school funding policy. Uh, he did have one, but um, it seems as if their policy is going to be put off until 2023 and that's if they get into government. But um, Dale is going to tell us about the opinion of Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, so election 2020, no education minister and an opposition without a school funding policy. Uh, school funding in Australia is a rolling disaster, but neither party wants to talk about the issue, let alone advance a serious solution. 
with a litany of special deals that have shamelessly favoured the non-government sector, the Morrison government has barely maintained a pretense of governing in the interests of all Australian children. They include JobKeeper subsidies for private schools that made huge profits, flood disaster relief for private schools only, a $1.2 billion choice and affordability slush fund for the non-government sector, and yet another billion in March in the March budget. Meanwhile, public schools will not even reach 90% of the needs-based resource standard until the end of the decade, if at all. The result is that we are now living in an oxymoron. One third of nominally private schools receive more taxpayer funding than at least half of the comparable public schools. That's not counting income from fees and other private sources. That's taxpayer funding alone. Nobody actually defends this in principle, but that's what we're doing. Conceivably, an opposition striving to win government might seek to make something of all this, but Labor's approach has fallen victim to Albo's small target strategy, along with the party's enduring timidity when it comes to the private school sector. Instead of a school funding policy, there's been a series of micro-announcements, money for COVID-proofing schools, resources for teaching respectful relationships, raising the entry standards to the teaching profession. All these policies are perfectly worthy in themselves, but taken together, they amount to an evasion of the central question. What are Labor's plans for the recurrent resourcing of schools? As far as public schools go, Labor has offered only vague talk about a pathway to fair funding. No timeline, no dollars and no guarantees. The only real commitment Labor has made this election is that it won't touch the funding of private schools. When Tanya Plibersek made an election campaign appearance on Insiders, the Pusarati were all agog with her cheeky line about uh, needling host David Spears. Uh, I don't want to interrupt you, David. But the Twitter cheer squad was less vocal when it came to an issue of actual substance that affects the lives of millions of young people. Spears asked Plibersek exactly the right question. When will Labor deliver 100% of needs-based funding to public schools? In response, Plibersek offered an excuse, an excuse, not an answer. Well, we're in the middle of an existing funding agreement that the Commonwealth signed with the states right now, she protested. That agreement concludes in 2023. We would, if elected, be negotiating with the states and territories about the next funding agreement. As sub subterfuges go, Plibersex is decidedly threadbare. Last election, Labor made a 10-year, $14 billion funding commitment, which included the current four-year funding agreement and the, new one, and the new one that will be negotiated next year. Plibersex is now claiming that she can't possibly provide a specific commitment that she was perfectly capable of making just three years ago. Spears offered a more plausible explanation for Labor's reticence when he observed that it had instead chosen to back Morrison's stage three tax cuts for those earning over $200,000. Labor has also fa failed to offer any detailed policy on the respective roles of Commonwealth and state governments in fully funding public schools. Should the Commonwealth lift its share from 20 to 25% of the SRS to complement the state's responsibility to deliver 75%? Or does Labor have an alternative plan to bring public schools up to the 100%? We just don't know. Then there's the matter of the special deals, which mean that states don't even have to deliver their 75% share. The loophole, crafted by Morrison and former Education Minister Dan Tian, allows states to count capital depreciation and spending on school transport, regulatory authorities, preschool and early childhood, even though none of the above are included in the agreed definition of net recurrent income per student. Labor has expressed disapproval. It's less clear whether it has a policy position to scrap this special arrangement which doesn't apply to private schools. Voters are left to choose between a government struggling to work out who the responsible minister is and an opposition missing in action. 
all the while school achievement continues to decline and the gap between the haves and the have-nots steadily grows. And that was an article by the authors of Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools, Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner. Over to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much. We'll have a little bit of a break and then we'll come back to Jeff, who's got a very interesting but rather long article. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Now, during the week, um, I'm not sure of the day, but uh, Jet found a very interesting article from the Sydney Review of Books, and he's going to tell us about this, the parable of the Amen Snorter and the Rotten fish. Over to you, Jeff. Well, thank you very much, Jean. And for this article, I'd actually like to send a special uh, sing out to uh, Arthur and Margaret, Arthur down in Port Ferry, um, who was a a maths teacher at my school 40 years ago. uh, And Arthur sent this to me. He's a supporter of the, they both supporters of the DOGS, uh, Defensive Government Schools. And he sent this in for us. And I have to say, it's one of the best articles I've read this year. It's a wonderful article in the Sydney Review of Books, and I urge anyone who would like to to, um, to Google it up. It's called The Parable of the Amen Snorter and the Rotten Fish, the Amen Snorter, and it's by uh, uh, James Lay, who's uh, an essayist with the Sydney Re- uh, Review of Books. It starts, firstly, some facts and definitions. The term secular describes a form of constitutional government where there is a separation of church and state. Secularism is synonymous with freedom of religion and thus freedom of conscience. It is one of the most of the preconditions and guarantors of genuine pluralism. If you do not have a secular society, you cannot have a genuinely democratic society. The antonyms of secularism are not faith and religion, but totalitarianism and theocracy. Secularism is an example of what Isaiah Berlin called negative liberty, which is to say freedom defined as the absence of obstacles and coercion. In a secular society, you are free to believe or disbelieve as you see fit. A truly secular society will, by definition, accommodate believers of any faith or denomination. No less importantly, it will also accommodate the godless. Freedom of religion means, ipso facto, freedom from religion. Australia is a secular country. In a formal sense, section 116 of the constitution states the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. Australia is a secular country in an informal sense. Data from the most recent census in 2021 is not due for release until June 2022, but it's safe to assume the figures will not be wildly divergent from the 2016 census, which confirmed Australia is a highly pluralistic society with a substantial irreligious streak. Almost a third of us have no religion, that's 30%, up from 22% in 2011. The most common religious identifications are Catholic, 22.6, down from 25.3. Uh, An Anglican, 13%, down from 17%, followed by an array of competing denominations and faiths, including small but significant cohorts of Muslims at 2.6%, Buddhists at 2.4%, Hindus 1.9%, Sikhs at half a percent, and Jews at 0.4 of a percent. I think it's also fair to say that most Australians chew to wear their religious identifications lightly. As Meredith Lake points out in the Bible in Australia, a cultural history, a large proportion of the nation's nominal Christians will rarely, if ever, darken the door of a church. The number of people who attend services on an even semi-regular basis, that means at least once a month, is below 15%. Though religion has always played its part in Australian politics and society, sometimes in ways that are far from benign, Lake observes that it tends not to assume a demonstrative form and has traditionally been counted with a healthy irreverence. She cites an article published in the Bulletin in 1904, a time when consensus figures had Australia at around 90% Christian, which listed the scornful epithets the hoi polloi applied to religious types, including Bible basher, sky pilot, devil dodger, gospel puncher, and my personal favourite, amen snorter. 
I apologise for the elementary nature of these observations, which I set out partly for the sake of clarity, but also because it's a matter of public record that the current Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is an amen snorter who does not know the meaning of secularism. On 14th of February 2008, Morrison stood in the Federal House of Representatives as the newly elected member for Cook to deliver his maiden speech in which he said this, Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. This is a nation where you have the freedom to follow any belief system you choose. Secularism is just one. It has no greater claim than any other on our society. As US Senator Joe Lieberman said, the constitution guarantees freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. I believe the same is true in this country. Morrison's a Pentecostal, a version of evangelical Protestantism that has become increasingly influential in recent decades. In her book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, Ellie Hardy notices the approximately a quarter of the world's more than 2 billion Christians identified as Pentecostal. The denomination having made substantial inroads in Africa and South America in particular. Around 30% of the population of Brazil, once considered amongst the most staunchly Catholic of nations, now belong to a Pentecostal church. In stubbornly secular Australia, however, Pentecostalism remains a relatively minor phenomenon. According to the 2016 census, Morrison shares his religious identification with 1.1% of the population a proportion unchanged in 2011. The political implications of Morrison's uncommon religion have inevitably been, been the subject of a good deal of discussion and a certain amount of speculation, but the most telling thing about the lines cited above is the most obvious, their incoherence. Morrison's apparent inability to grasp the distinction between a personal belief system and an operative constitutional arrangement may simply be ignorance. To the best of my knowledge, no one has ever praised the current prime minister for his intellect. So the possibility that he does not understand a core principle of the Australian constitution must remain open. Yet the incoherence is itself revealing. There is a basic stance or at least an attitude of discernible in the confusion of these lines. It is one of defensiveness. The factual inaccuracies and contradictions of Morrison's declaration of principle all follow from his use of secularism as a euphemism for godlessness. He is positioning himself as an embattled believer defending his religious faith against a hostile secular society, unaware that he is battling his own incomprehension, claiming a freedom he already possesses. And look, I'm going to read ahead because uh, there is such a wonderful article, but I, I can't get through it all on, on the dog show. It's going to take too long. So uh, I'm going to refer back to reading it, uh, Amen Snorter and the Rotten Fish and the Sydney Review of Books. But I will just continue a couple of points where one of his sycophantic admirers, a guy called Sheridan, who believes that basically um, you have to be Christian in order to be good. He, he, he wrote a book about it and he, he says, Sheridan quotes Morrison complaining that it's unfair for people to criticise his religion if they disagree with his politics. But it's perfectly fair to ask how the religion that is supposedly fundamental to his worldview squares with his uniformly disgraceful public record, particularly when that religion is being presented to and uncritically accept, accepted by Sheridan as evidence of his integrity. A disinterested observer might well note the alignment between Morrison's political religious principles and self-interest. Sheridan provides an opposite example, which is the more striking, that it seems to uh, cast him in a flattering light. Um, apparently, during his time for Minister for Immigration, the role that placed him in charge of Australia's calculatedly cruel border regime, Morrison was often in tears about the moral gravity of the decisions he felt he had to make. When he, when he has to make such tough, tough decisions, he confessed to Sheridan, he searches his soul and spirit. One can only imagine his relief at the end of that anguished soul searching when he discovered that his conscience did not require him to show any mercy or take any kind of ethical stand that might have harmed his career prospects. Some sceptical readers may recall that Morrison, sensitive soul that he is, went on to perform his role as Minister for Immigration with such alacrity that he awarded himself a trophy. Look, I'm going to cut it there. It, it, it talks about Morrison, how he, he actually was the prime instigator of robo-debt, which, which uh, Lay points out is one of the, the most disgusting pieces of uh, policy ever, ever, ever made in Australia, something that hurt people and, and caused them to commit suicide uh, because they had no right of reply. Look, it goes through to the principle, just because you're Christian doesn't mean you're good, and just because you're godless or irreligious doesn't mean you're bad. Um, in this sense, he's, he's wearing a mask of Christianity as a veil to say that whatever I do is good because I'm a Christian, whereas actually he's presided over some of the most wicked uh, public policy uh, decisions uh, in Australian history and also uh, has 
essentially got no public plan uh, for the future of Australia. He's a vacuum, a policy vacuum. And so please, from a dog's point of view, do not vote Conservative. They really are uh, not the people we want to lead forward education in this country. And I'm going to leave it there. Um, I highly recommend people review that, uh, that essay, and, and especially today when it's the uh, election day. Really important. Have a good think about how you're going to vote. I'm going to pass it back to you now, Dale. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, and you can find that um, at the Sydney Review of Books and the article's titled The Parable of the Amen Snorter and the Rotten Fish. It's a great article and we do recommend that you check out the rest of it. But uh, that's enough bad news. We're now on to our good news story, our great state school of the week. <laughs> Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of great the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> This week's Great State School of the Week is Hume Central Secondary College. Hume Central Secondary College is a co-educational public school located in Broad Meadows, Victoria, Australia. Um, they have a curriculum for years seven to nine with the senior program being built around skills, interests and career pathways. Um, and the curricula is broader and more specialised than in years seven to nine, which includes mathematics methods, specialist mathematics, physics, psychology, business management, studio arts, media studies, historical studies, health and human development and legal studies. They have three campuses. They have the Blair Street campus, which has actually won several awards for its progressive and environmentally friendly design. And they also have the Dimboola Road campus and the Town Park campus. And um, now we have a short audio clip from ABC News of a parent and child of Hume Secondary College. I really like the school that I go to. The teachers at Hume Central are just really dedicated. Everyone, despite where you live, your ethnic background, your religious background, everyone deserves a proper education. In Melbourne, 14-year-old Somia Gimaray is proud to attend her local public school, Hume Central Secondary College. But the Year 9 student would love to see it receive more support. It's like a racetrack, you know. If we were to put public school kids and private school kids on a level playing field, and then let's say allow the private school kid to step, let's say a couple meters forward. When you start the race, it's already gonna be imbalanced. Public school are great, teachers are great. All the teachers are highly qualified. How are you? Somia's mother, Sarita, works in aged care, while her father is a nurse at the Alfred Hospital. Yeah, how was your day? My day was good. Definitely, most of the parents, they can't afford to send their kids in private school. If we received more funding, let's say, the school nurse could be able to come in for more than just one time a week. and. Our libraries could be filled up with more books. And now some facts and figures. These are from the Akara My School website. The school has an enrolment of 1,181 pupils and its ICSIA value is well below average at 894. So this school has about 1% of students with parental income in the upper 25%, the top quartile. Um, about 6% of its students have parental income in the second highest quartile. Um, they have around 16% of students from the second lowest quartile 
And 76% of their students, so definitely the majority, have parental income in the lowest quartile. So really this school is uh, very multicultural and representative of the Australian migrant community with 82% speaking a language other than English and 2% of their students are Indigenous. And now some for some finances. Um, this school has some recurrent grants from the Australian government of 2.5 million, from the Victorian government of 9.9 million, from fees and parental contributions, there is uh, 323000 And from other private contribu- contru- contributions, there is 143000 which works out to be 20093 per pupil. Which is uh, pretty good considering this is one of the disadvantaged public schools that we were talking about before. So um, $20,000 per pupil for the education they're getting is is uh, because not only are they disadvantaged, but they're also regional. Uh, it's, it's very good going. It's um, They're doing a lot with, with the little. So congratulations to uh, Hume Central College. You're our great state school of the week this week. Uh, And that's all we've got time for this week. I'd just like to remind our listeners that coming up is Radiothon. Uh, The only reason the dogs are on air is because 3CR Community Radio exists. And 3CR Community Radio is where you will hear analysis and information that you will not hear in the mainstream because they don't want you to hear it. So please support the dogs. Each year we have a target of around $6,000 to make to help us stay on air. Um, the sta- station itself has a target of around a quarter of a million dollars. So any contribution you can scrape together over the next few weeks to get ready for our Radiothon appeal would be greatly, greatly appreciated by us here at the dogs and the entire 3CR community. So If you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But from the whole gang, until next week, it's bye for now. Joe, 
You're ten years dead. I never died to 